Hello again. Welcome back to the New Discourses podcast. Welcome back to this interminable series on critical education theory, better known as critical pedagogy in the formal literature, and this interminable sub-series about Paulo Freire, and within that, this other interminable sub-sub-series about Paulo Freire's The Politics of Education, his book from 1985 that broke him out into the North American education scene. Colleges of education had largely ignored his kind of magnum opus, which is called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which was written in 1970, up until the publication and promotion of this book, which, as we read in the uh, Critical Turn in Education by Isaac Gotsman, we learned that this book got a favorable review in the Harvard Education Review. It was heavily championed by Henry Giroux, who had already become Paulo Freire's chief evangelist, uh, and Henry Drew had set the stage to make sure this book would get taken up by hundreds of Marxist educators that he had helped get tenured in colleges of education in the preceding maybe five to ten years. And that's really how our education became Marxified, became Freirian, and what you understand now after having listened to so many of these episodes going through this book in tremendous detail is that our kids go to Paulo Freire schools, just like we live in Herbert Marcuse's world our kids go to Paulo Freire schools. And this was not a mistake. This is part of the, uh, this is the successful branch of the long march through the institutions, whereby the Marxists were able to infiltrate our key cultural pillars, in particular, in this case, education, and kind of lead from there into everything else. And so we've gone through seven chapters of this book, did a couple of episodes on the introduction, which is by Henry Drew, did a couple of episodes Going through chapter, going through chapters one through four, two uh, chapters per. Did an episode on chapter five, which is a strange little piece where Freire says that social work and education are basically the same endeavor, and that explains a lot. Would the social workers they're bringing into our schools would they attempt to send social workers to re-educate criminals in place of police? with the idea that the role of the social worker is to raise a critical consciousness in the people they intervene with, in other words, to, to Marxify them rather than to actually help them with their problems, with the push for trauma-informed education and with the push for social-emotional learning, which is linked to that. In fact, social-emotional learning is justified typically on the back of uh, trauma-informed education or trauma-informed care. Trauma-informed care, or did some digging on that the other day, trauma-informed care started in 2001 to deal with actually an issue in medicine and psychiatry where people who had been traumatized had issues that needed special treatment by the people, the, the doctors working with them so they didn't, you know, hit psychological triggers, you know, in the case of, say, after a rape or some other traumatic event. And it kind of mushroomed into this thing that's not what it used to be, and then it got taken up by idiot teachers, education activists, I should say, who, when you read the seminal papers and the seminal books, are describing a shift in education into which trauma-informed care fits perfectly, and what they describe is exactly the Freirean education model, the dialogical model of Freire. The idea that education should be for awakening a consciousness to a more just and equitable world. Exactly the Freirean model. So chapter five, presages of this book, presages all of this pop psychology nonsense, some of which actually has roots directly tied into not Scientology, 
but a cult spinoff of Scientology called Reevaluation Counseling, which is apparently just kind of a plagiarized version of Scientology written in the terms of pop psychology. Uh, Henry Jackins, I think, is the guy behind that. But one of its biggest devotees was Herbert Marcuse's third wife. And she was 100% into Herbert Marcuse's nonsense and 100% into re-evaluation counseling as a pop psychology cult that's a spinoff of Scientology. And this is the milieu in which all this trauma-informed nonsense all kind of came into the being, facilitated by these social workers who had taken up the Freirian charge in this book. So, not to dwell, we went on to chapter 6. We did two episodes on chapter 6 where we actually see Freire's Marxification of education. And last time we covered chapter 7, which is where this book takes a turn. So, this book has started to turn away from explicitly being about education and becoming more explicitly religious in chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. These five chapters take a completely different turn. Now, I overstate the case a little bit at the beginning of the previous podcast by saying that the book virtually doesn't talk about education anymore, and it just gets religious. That's not entirely true. This chapter, chapter 8, does actually turn back toward talking about education because it is the idea of political literacy. That's what the the focus of this chapter is. It is, uh, pull up the title of the chapter, I think I would have written that down, but I didn't on my notes. Um, This chapter is actually uh, the process. It's always a process, isn't it? Uh, Whoops, I've got the wrong chapter here. Let me go up to the table of contents. So it is the chapter 8, the process of political literacy. That's what I thought it was, but I didn't want to say it wrong. So it is the process of political literacy. So since he's going to talk about the process of achieving political literacy, he's going to talk about education. But this chapter is still heavily weird in the religious way. Not only is it weird in the religious way, but it is also, it it, it gives away, it, it tells you exactly what I've been saying all along. So a lot of people like to accuse me of reading Marxist literature and reading things into it. Nothing can be further from the truth. As a matter of fact, I resist reading things into it. I resist these conclusions. I famously go read cynical theories and read how much effort. Read the essays that Helen and I were writing around the time we were writing cynical theories or when we were talking about the Grievance Studies Affair. And look at how much effort we put into resisting the conclusion that any of this is Marxist, that it's somehow different. It's somehow, no, it's postmodern. No, it's neo-Marxist a little bit, but not really. We resisted so vigorously. But in this chapter, in chapter 8, Freire makes it absolutely clear what I've been saying about this book, that the point of education for Freire is a political education. And by political education, it means a Marxist education. There is no other conclusion possible. And in fact, he says it explicitly. So he does that while getting even more religious. And when we turn to chapter 9, you're going to hear just how crazy religious this book is. And like I said, chapter 10 is actually about liberation theology explicitly. So his literal fusion of Marxism and Catholicism, the religion that Freire actually practiced. And so in this chapter, chapter 8, Freire turns explicitly religious. He's also reframing the purpose of education itself. What's the reframing? The reframing is that education should teach political literacy. Um, it's not exactly easy on the first reading to make sense of the role of this eighth chapter in the politics of education, the process of political literacy, But if we keep a little bit of distance from the actual text, 
what we can see is what for, for Freire, legitimate literacy means political literacy. That's what the point of this chapter is. And so like all Marxists, there's only one true or legitimate or valid or scientific political theory, which is the Marxist political theory. So when he says political literacy is the point of education, and he does, that what he means is making you into a Marxist is the point of education. There's only one valid way to understand politics because Marx believed that he had found the one true scientific study of history, thus the conditions that form history, thus not just economics but politics. The only possible political theory that is valid is Marxism. All the others, according to Marx, suffer from ideology. All the others are captured by the dominant modes of thought that are created by the bourgeoisie to maintain their own power. Only Marxism, which arrives from this Gnostic consciousness, scientific Gnostic consciousness, that Marx said is crucial to understand how to seize the means of production of society and man and the world around you to go forward to a utopian vision. Remember, that's what chapter 7 is really about, by the way, was the utopian character of uh, Freyarian education. Only through the scientific study, as he called it, of history, the Wissenschaftlicher Socialismus, the scientific socialism, only through that can you possibly understand the world correctly. Everything else is an ideological distortion. Everything else is a mythology that the ruling class tells itself to keep itself in power and to keep everybody else down. So Marxism is the only legitimate political theory. And when we talk about educating into political literacy, then educating into Marxism is the only possible conclusion. This is because Marx insisted that all politics is ideology except his. It's all mythological stories about the world that the bourgeoisie tell themselves. I know I just said this. I'm saying it again. It's so important to understand how Marx thinks and so how all Marxists, including Freire, think because our kids go to Paulo Freire's Marxist schools. So uh, ideologies are mythologies, mythological stories that the bourgeoisie write for themselves about the world, tell themselves, believe convince people in the underclass in some numbers of believing, giving them false consciousness. These are just stories that are to justify this, not their own dominance specifically, but the system in which they happen to be dominant. So it removes agency by one level so that everything's kind of behind this veil. What they're justifying is a system, but they're justifying that system because a system benefits them. This is the weird conspiracy theory nature of all Marxism. And so the only remedy to this, the only way out for Marx is having a conscious so-called scientific study of the so-called real material conditions, which Marx believed that he alone had discovered, that politics is downstream from actually economics, that in fact society and man and everything is downstream from economic and material conditions. So what this actually comes from, though, is Marx's application of Hegel's two-tiered system of science, this system der Wissenschaft, which is what he actually called his most famous book, Phenomenology of Spirit. So we're talking about Hegel right now, not Marx, if I didn't make that clear. So we're appropriating Hegel. Marx is appropriating Hegel with his two-tiered Wissenschaft, which has, for, for Hegel, you had Verstand, which is understanding, which is what we think of as science, underneath a higher level, a higher order understanding of the world that he called Vernunft, which was translated as reason. And so 
what Hegel had actually created was this idea that, yeah, we have to go understand the world. That's verstand. We have to understand it. Verstand, understand. But at the same time, we have to be able to contextualize those facts. We have to be able to understand what we're actually looking at. We have to be able to see, in a sense, the big holistic picture and see the pieces within context of the whole and its reason, Vernunft, in fact, his own theory, his own speculative idealism that gave the actual overarching metaphysical theory in which the world is to be understood. And so it's from that dichotomy that Marx creates his own Wissenschaftlicher Socialismus, the scientific socialism. So what that means is, yeah, we still have to go do, we have to go study the world, but the, the study of the world that we're going to do is always going to have to conform to Marxist theory. Marxist theory is the true reason everything else is ideological or contaminated by ideology, contaminated by vested interests that people don't even know that they're participating in, because what they defend is not their own vested interest, but they've created this mythological, this mystification of how things work called a system, and they defend the system that happens to benefit them. That's the Marxist conspiracy theory. And the scientific socialism, wherein he asserts his dialectical materialism, that you can change the material conditions through a dialectical process, which is Marx's form of scientific Gnosticism. That's the one true understanding of society, of man, of history, of the world. Everything has to conform to that. So there's only one political theory that's legitimate because everything else defends a system. And we hear this very clearly and consistently throughout Freire. We heard it very definitely in the seventh chapter that we just talked about. So if you're following the whole series, you would have definitely heard that. If you're not following the whole series, you probably don't have the slightest idea what's going on, and you need to go listen to the rest of the series, and I know it's a whole lot of stuff. But this isn't, I mean, this is a big deal. This is what's actually, you should listen to this, because this is really what's happened in our schools. This is what's happening in our schools. This is what's happening to your children. Freire was super clear in the, the previous chapter that he said, you know, he said basically that Che Guevara is the avatar of the only true left-wing thing, and everything else is right-wing. It doesn't matter if you get your revolution. If you then take control, you have to continue being a revolutionary because if you take control, then you've actually become on the right. And he actually says that, right? He says that the right wing is anything bureaucratic, anything sclerotic, anything he calls necrophiliac, death-loving, only constant perpetual cultural revolution, only constant perpetual cultural revolution that, in fact, he says, doesn't know where it's going. Because if you know the end, then you're imposing the end and you've become right wing. He says that. That's the way he says it. If you know the end that you have in mind and you try to impose it on people, that's basically Stalin, and you've become right wing. So the only thing that's left wing is a constant perpetual cultural revolution that doesn't know where it's going, embodied in Che Guevara. Everything else is right wing for him. So he says that very explicitly, that there's only one understanding, one political literacy that matters. And so this comes out of this continued evolution of Marxist thought, or really Hegelian dialectical thought, which we would broadly call dialectical leftism or the dialectical faith of leftism, as I sometimes call it, because uh, Hegel's idealism wasn't good enough for Marx, so he transformed it into actual dialectical leftism. I, I don't know if Hegel was a leftist or not. He was... Um, kind of like the theologian before left, it split into left and right. There was a left wing and a right wing Hegelianism that came out. Marx was in the left wing. 
uh, branch. So Hegel, for me, creates scientific Gnosticism, which is just Gnostic cults. That's the serpent in the Garden of Eden, whispering in the language of what they presume is science, but it's actually not science because what is science is this firstand, and then it's got this Gnostic architecture built on top of it that is vernunft the true understanding, the true metaphysic into which the science has to be understood. So Marx doesn't like how idealistic he is, so he takes it a turn around the dialectic and puts it into dialectical materialism, into the material world, by rejecting the speculative idealism of Hegel. So now politics are not running downstream from the ideal, the kind of neo-Platonist ideal realm where Hegel put them, Politics now run downstream from material conditions. And so what we see with Freire is, in fact, no, they run downstream from cultural conditions. And we see yet another turn of the dialectical ratchet. And so for all three of these guys, whether Hegel, whether Marx, whether Freire, the only scientific or true study of politics follows from this particular dialectical interpretation. or So for us, for, for, for Freire in particular, from the Marxist interpretation of those conditions. So Marx's own dialectical materialism is the only valid political theory. And as such, when we educate for political literacy, as Freire is advocating in this chapter, which is a, you know, kind of pivotal, important chapter, it's not as important as chapter six in this book. But when we, we educate for political literacy, what Freire means is we educate for Marxism. So we use a Marxified version of education, we already discussed that at length, especially in chapter six, to, what do we use? We use a Marxified version of education to push Marxist theory. So what is culturally relevant education? I bring this up a million times, connecting it directly to Freirean education. In fact, I say it is Freirean education. All culturally responsive education is, is that we're now using a identity-based cultural Marxist theory of education to push a culturally based identity Marxist theory. In other words, we have a race Marxist theory of education pushing critical race theory. Same exact model. Gloria Ladson Billings did not do anything particularly ingenious here. In fact, it's borderline plagiarism. All she did was take the Freirean object and put it in a race box. That's all she did and called it culturally relevant teaching, or culturally relevant pedagogy, culturally relevant education. We did a podcast reading through her seminal paper on this already. It's just a straight, and I mean straight, repackaging of Paulo Freire's educational program. And the point of this, that we read in this chapter, and we're going to break this down now, is that political literacy is the real point of education. It's also the real point of social work. In fact, it's the real point of everything that might be a pedagogical moment, a learning moment for, us, for anybody who might be considered a learner. And that it is to awaken the Marxist consciousness. And it's only correct. Political literacy is the point of education, and it's only correct when it's Marxist political literacy. In other words, reading the world as a Marxist would read it. Literally reading the world, political literacy, as a Marxist would read it. And that's the point of his generative words or generative concepts approach. That's the, literally the point of the codification, problematization, decodification method described in chapter six. It's crucial to understand this and its meaning when we're facing the fact that our kids go to Paulo Freire schools. So as we saw in the previous chapter, in chapter seven, for Freire and thus for education activists like Gloria Ladson Billings, who brought critical race theory into education and created culturally relevant teaching 
the other CRT, I sometimes like to say, in kind of the same year, 1995, and it's just a direct cheap repackaging of Freire and pedagogy anyway, for, for Freire and activists like Gloria Ladson Billings, the point of education is to awaken critical consciousness. Go back, listen to the Gloria Ladson Billings podcast on culturally relevant teaching. No kidding. She says it. She says that culturally relevant teaching has three purposes. One is to generate academic success, which she never at any point in the entire essay says how that's supposed to work, just like at no point in this entire book does Paulo Freire cite an education theorist. The second is to induce cultural competence. It's to come from a place of cultural competence and to induce cultural competence. Cultural competence would be political literacy. There you go. You are culturally competent when you're politically literate in the cultural domain, where the cultural domain is identity politics, where you're politically black instead of just racially black. And third, she says it is for, and I, I kid you not, word for word, raising a critical consciousness. It's just Marxist education. It's just the Freirian pedagogy repackaged. And that's ex explicitly what she says the point is. The point of education is to awaken a critical consciousness. That is the Marxist type of political literacy. And that's going to be done at the expense of genuine literacy or academic mastery, as we keep hearing throughout Freire. Why learn disconnected sentences or Id idiotic syllables? Why, why do this? We need to use the math class to teach ethnomathematics, to do mathographies where we now write our feelings about math, to understand how math needs to be less individual and more collectivist according to the uh, entire West Coast's education program. We're getting the right answers considered a facet of white supremacy culture in mathematics. We don't need to be reading to read. We need to be reading specific materials that convey this political message or that set up the ability to have this political dialogue. We don't have to have regular vocabulary lists. We need to talk about racial politics-based uh, vocabulary lists, where the vocabulary words are things like racism, suffering, misery, injustice, equity, things like this, generative concepts. So as we saw through the first six chapters of this book, there's a big switcheroo that's taking place with Freudian education where you're no longer talking about teaching people to actually do things because if they got academic mastery, they would use that, as Freire says, the banking model of education, that's the thing he strawmans actual education as, sees the child or the learner as an empty vessel into which knowledge is put that he or she can then choose to capitalize upon or not. So there's a capitalistic idea that learning things allows you to capitalize in a knowledge-based or information-based economy. And so we see this switcheroo, this bait and switch of education, where you're no longer educating to educate, you're educating for political literacy, and it's done through the Marxification of education, the generative concepts approach, the codification, problematization, decodification technique, the dialogical, it is grooming method. And remember, the codification, problematization, decodification is just another repackaging, by the way. It's just a repackaging of Hegel. Hegel said that his dialectic differed from Kant's dialectic. This is the famous one. Kant puts out the famous dialectic, that you have a thesis and you meet it with its antithesis, and then you sort out how those two contradictory things must encapsulate some broader whole, and you arrive at a synthesis. But Hegel didn't do this. Hegel changed the dialectic. Whether you like Kant or not doesn't matter. This is Immanuel Kant. If, whether you like him or his philosophy or not, doesn't matter. Whether you want to pin all the evils of the counter-enlightenment on him 
as Stephen Hicks often does or not, doesn't matter. Hegel changed it fundamentally, and this is where the birth of scientific Gnosticism comes from. Hegel changed it fundamentally because he made it about negative thinking. You no longer think you no longer take the dialectic as thesis, antithesis, synthesis, where you're trying to figure out how seemingly contradictory things have a broader understanding. It's kind of the idea. No, for Hegel, though, it is that you abstractify the thing, then you negate it, and then you arrive at the concrete understanding of it, which is a different thing. So you have abstract, negative, concrete, which is codify to abstract an idea like, say, the slum, problematize, which is to negate it, to say how it's problematic, to do politics with it, and then decodify it to make it concrete to your real understanding of the world. So it's just another repackaging. In fact, there's not a whole lot of original ideas in any of this crap. It's just a lot of repackaging of the same thing into new boxes, the same broken idea, which is Hegel's negative thinking in the first place. Hegel's scientific Gnosticism is still Gnostic cult nonsense, and it doesn't work. And it will eventually, in the end, lead to catastrophes, like it does every time they try it. Marx made it so much worse by making it wholly material and fundamentally evil, putting man at the center of everything, throwing morality out unless it serves his agendas, making it based entirely, and I don't think this is true of Hegel, uh, entire, entirely in his, in his grotesque entitlement complex that the man had. And so he, he created this whole new thing, and I'd say that Marx is the father of dialectical leftism, um, whereas Hegel is the father of scientific Gnosticism. I'm going to kind of keep hammering those things until those terms become familiar to people. To get into the text of this chapter, though, now that we've kind of really set it up, which outlines the political literacy process, it becomes absolutely clear that what Freire is doing is turning education into cult grooming. There's no other way to put it. So, okay, groomer, okay, groomer, okay, groomer. Yeah, well, there is sexual grooming going on. But there's, and there's also grooming into these weird, like, gender, sex, sexuality-based queer theory concepts to destabilize kids. And we already heard from Hannah Dyer in Groomer School's 2 episode here on the New Discourses podcast that the point of all of that early childhood grooming into sex, gender, sexuality, queer theory more broadly is in fact not to create a stable LGBTQ identity, but to make sure that those identities stay fluid so that they never stabilize, they never become concrete. The person, the child never learns to know themselves, never grows into who they're, they, actu they actually are. They're constantly being destabilized. Okay. Yeah, so that's grooming. There is sexual grooming too. Of course, I'm going to insist that despite the, what is it, 100 to 1 ratio. We hear about the, the pedophilic grooming in the Catholic Church, for example, is this gigantic trope throughout society. It's the biggest scandal in 50 years. Everybody knows about it. Everybody makes jokes about it. Everybody is unfairly, uh, you know, uh, conflates pedophilia and Catholicism. And yet we have a 100 to 1 ratio of actual sexual abuse happening in schools versus Catholic Church, something like that statistic I've been seeing floating around all week. So there is definitely sexual grooming going on in the schools, but what we actually undeniably have happening in the schools is cult grooming, and the cult is Marxism. The method is going to be the Freirean methods and techniques. Those are going to have been repackaged into the identity politics or identity Marxist-based versions like critical race theory, which is race Marxism, queer theory, which is queer Marxism or gender Marxism or sex Marxism, whichever one we want to have. And so it's undeniable cult grooming. 
And we're going to hear how undeniable this is, that it's cult grooming. But cult grooming works very in a very simple way. As I've said before, I gave a three-part dichot- or trichotomy, I guess, three-part uh, framework for cult grooming. I called it the Cult Dynamics, Dynamics Awokeness, published it right after George Floyd died. And uh, it was the first kind of viral article on new discourses. Um, ended up talking to Glenn Beck about it at the time and then on his show and then got invited to talk about it on Glenn Beck again uh, just a few weeks ago. So almost two years later, we're still talking about that essay. And I gave a very simple framework. You induce vulnerability. You give somebody a resolution to that through cult doctrine and thus you deepen that. And then you cut people off from their uh, from from outside sources. That's the basics of cult grooming. So there's there's in, there's there's cult initiation, cult indoctrination, and then cult programming. There's the three stages that I, I laid out. Okay, so the way this works in practice is that you do things to identify vulnerable kids. Like I don't know, give them a million social emotional learning um, surveys all the time. Ask them if they're suicidal. Ask them what they think about suicide. Ask them if they have suicidal ideation. Ask them about how the changes in their body make them feel. Ask them if sometimes they feel like a boy and but sometimes they feel like a girl. Ask them all kinds of personal questions to identify who's vulnerable, who's uh, stressed out. Constant social emotional learning. Constant work with the social workers. Bring some more social workers into the school. Constantly work with them. Figure out who the vulnerable kids are. And then you shuttle them into either programs through the curriculum, maybe, or two after-school clubs, a very famous one being Gay Straight Alliance. I don't mean to just pick on them, but it seems to be very prominent in doing this. And you take them, and you, you you take them to this, and you say, "Oh wow, welcome to the club. Thank you for coming. Oh my gosh, you're so brave. You're so stunning and brave. You're so so powerful. So blah blah blah. You're great, 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 great." And you basically pull off the Maoist education thing. You make them feel vulnerable for whatever identity they're already in. You identify who those people are. You exacerbate that vulnerability. You create that sense of vulnerability. Then you take them to a thing where the cult doctrine is going to be employed and you love bomb them. You make them feel welcome. You make them feel great. You make them feel like they're finally found their home and you just love bomb them, love bomb them, love bomb them. They get them to attach to that organization as a resolution to all of the vulnerability and trauma that they're feeling. So constantly having this trauma-informed education where they talk about trauma, 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 trauma. You probably have hidden trauma. Let's bring up your hidden trauma. Let's talk about all the traumatic things that have happened. You know, almost 12% of kids have had blah, 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 and you just start sucking them in. Then you bring them to the to the organization, to the classroom that covers it, to the social worker at the school who's indoctrinating them with this. You love bomb them, and then you start feeding them cult doctrine. Here's the reason why everything's bad, and here's something you can do about it. And so you get this cycle of building commitment. And then this deepens and deepens, and eventually you start saying, well, the other people, they don't want you to be like this. Your parents don't want you to be like this. Your parents don't understand you. The culture outside doesn't understand you because it's oppressive. Your parents grew up in an oppressive culture. It's not their fault, but they don't, they can't understand. And you start getting them to separate from people that they used to be attached to. This is the cult grooming process. It is undeniable that that's what's going on. And what we're going to see in this chapter is what Freire is describing in the process of political literacy is cult grooming. Not just a bait and switch into a Marxified education, not just a bait and switch into, um, you know, Mark, learning Marxism instead of math in your math class, but literal cult grooming as a form of edu- as something posing as education, okay? And so this is chapter eight. So this conclusion turns out to be unavoidable thanks to the extremely weird and cultish religious 
language and nature of his so-called prophetic vision. I mean, I said religious, by the way, for religious people, it's it's heretical, of course. And so all of you, your fellow Christians or whatever, who happen to be taking this stuff up and thinking it has something to offer are heretics. They've bought into a heresy. They've been whispered to by the serpent, and they don't even necessarily know it. But we literally have Freire talking about and Giroux saying that this is his goal, is that this is a prophetic vision for education that's spelled out in this chapter and especially the next chapter uh, in this book. So this chapter begins with a little prelude to the original essay that he edited. So remember that this book is actually a series of essays that he wrote and then he edited them together into a volume. So he begins with this weird little prelude to, to set it up, to kind of confess that he's using an old essay. And normally I would skip this because it doesn't really add anything. Except this, this little prelude that he wrote gives you a really clear sense of what I'm talking about when I talk about Freire this way. I have nothing charitable to say about this freak. And so here's how he starts. When I began to write this chapter, I looked upon this theme as a challenge. Indeed, Seeing this as a challenge forces me to respond critically rather than naively. My critical attitude in itself presupposes a deep and intimate understanding of the theme and the sense of unveiling it more and more. This essay then answers the challenge by becoming yet another challenge for its potential readers. My critical attitude toward this theme leads me to an act of knowledge, and this requires not only knowing objects but also a knowing subject, like me. This is unambiguously cult guru stuff. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? So he frames this whole damn thing out like this chapter was a challenge for me, but it's an even bigger challenge for you. And it answers the challenge by becoming an even bigger challenge. And he says that what it requires is this critical attitude, Marxism, and my critical attitude toward this theme, he says, leads me into an act of knowledge. An act of knowledge that it's a challenge to get to. And this requires, and this is the kicker, this requires not only knowing objects, but also a knowing subject. You can't just know what you're learning. You also have to be a knowing subject. But who does he say is a knowing subject that you can go to to learn how to be a knowing subject? This requires not only knowing objects, but also a knowing subject like me. Himself. You can't. You almost can't make it up. I mean, I could probably make it up, but I probably wouldn't make that up. It's just too funny. It's just too on the nose. So how does Freire start to answer this challenge? It's by describing the process of knowing. And what we're going to hear is that it's more cult stuff. And it gets crazier throughout this whole chapter, and then the next chapter goes right off a cliff. But before we kind of dive into more Freire, he, I want you to notice, Freire actually seems to describe everything as a process. Why? Because in the Marxist religion, everything is incomplete. And you start by recognizing that everything is incomplete. Man is incomplete. Society is incomplete. The world is incomplete. And it's man's duty to complete those things through the dialectical process. Because like for Hegel, every, nothing is, everything's in the process of becoming. Everything is dialectical. Now, I've talked a lot about this Gnostic aspect, scientific Gnosticism, blah, blah, blah. But this is ultimately something else. This is what's called hermetic. Hermetic is this kind of cult view of what was called hermeticism. Hermeticism is alchemy. Alchemy of a very particular type. Uh, it's kind of a parallel heresy to Gnosticism, but it's not identical to it. In fact, they're not actually compatible. And a lot of people have pointed that out when I've been trying to tell people Hegel put forth a 
hermetic and Gnostic religion in kind of a weird mold of Christianity. And people are like, no, 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 that can't be because Gnosticism and Hermeticism are not compatible. Well, it turns out that I would offer that maybe Hegel dialectically synthesized two incompatible things to make his weird speculative philosophy. And it's not that weird of a thing to believe. So what is a hermetic belief? A hermetic belief is that the, the absolute, if we use Hegel's language, God, the deity, the infinite, cannot actually know itself. The divine cannot know itself as divine without something mundane to compare itself to. So if you want the divine to understand itself as divine, it has to have a mundane. So God creates the world, not because he has this particular act of creation or whatever it's in his nature, da, da, da. No, it's because God doesn't know himself to be God. And so fooling around, he creates the world. And the purpose of that is so that he will come to know himself by that which is in the world, doing its thinking processes and working out the dialectic. Or actually doing the alchemical processes. We're still in uh, hermeticism. We're not actually necessarily getting into uh, the dialectical part that Hegel brought. I would say that if we're using this kind of metaphor of, of alchemy and whatever, I would say that the fire that's doing the alchemy, the, ma the magical fire that Hegel's using is the dialectic. It transforms the things inside the alembic, the, the ingredients that he puts in to transmute into some different form. And so with the hermetic belief, the nothing is. Things are just becoming. So there is gold, but gold is the seeds of gold are trapped. Gold is a divine metal and it's trapped within the mundane metals like lead, maybe mercury. It's trapped within them. And that you could free the seeds of gold and get them to blossom and grow into gold through the alchemical processes because it's in the process of becoming. The world for the hermetic religion is in the process of becoming perfect. The world is becoming. It's in the process of becoming better and better and better. And this is what Hegel took up. And Hegel actually saw the idea as the perfect idea that doesn't know that it's a perfect idea. So it splits itself into the theoretical idea and offshoots uh, that's divine and shoots off a uh, practical idea that is in the world. And the practical idea takes a form and takes a shape and that's in the state. And the state then gives rise in turn to a spirit. And that spirit is where the, the kind of cultural alchemy takes place and leads to a revolution in a new idea where the theoretical idea advances by one turn around the dialectic, giving rise to a new practical idea. And the long, 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 long process of becoming, at the very end, the theoretical idea and the practical idea fuse back into one another. They become the same idea. Theory and praxis must wed. They become the same idea. And when that happens, the absolute realizes that he is absolute or that it is absolute, and thus you actually have the deity that realizes it is deity. The ultimate contradiction is the deity that doesn't yet realize that it's deity. And then it realizes it. Everything is in the process of becoming. And the thinking agents of the world, people, are the ones who actually do the thinking that reveal the dialectical pro through the dialectical process all the contradictions and thus eventually their synthesis. They're being made concrete, being made whole. So everything is becoming. So everything is a process for Freire because this is the Marxist Hegelian. This is the dialectical faith of leftism. Everything's in the process of becoming and conscious agents are the ones who need to direct it. And so the revolution that Freire talks about constantly, that he wants to make re he wants to remake education completely so that your children will become its change agents, that has to be perpetual because it's a constant 
revolution. If it ever stops, you're stuck. You're just stuck at another stage of history. You're not becoming any longer. So it must become perpetual. And constant change is the necessity so that it just won't stay still. Nothing will be stable. There'll be constant chaos, constant destabilization, because stability makes for conservatives, and conservatives turn into counter-revolutionaries, which both he and Herbert Marcuse and all the frustrated neo-Marxists cannot abide because they figured out that that's why we're not getting our freaking revolution. We cannot get a global revolution. We cannot get a Western communist revolution because people are stable, because advanced capitalism delivers the goods. So these are your children that are going to be turned into this permanently destabilized class and permanently destabilizing class. So that's why you see the incorporation of Lukács' ideas with the gender and sexual themes, constant destabilization of your children in order to achieve their Marxist pipe dreams. And I'm not kidding. I know that was a huge kind of tangent and diversion into some deeply theoretical stuff, but Freire doesn't beat around the bush at all. Besides all the echoing of Hegel and Marx and the quoting of them so far, he doesn't beat around the bush. He says, since it is always a process, knowing presumes a dialectical situation. It just, it just says it. I'm not making any of this up. People are like, oh, James reads these books wrong. No, he doesn't. It's right there. Since it is always a process, knowing presumes a dialectical situation. There's only one pro possible way to interpret something that's a process through a dialectic. That's Marxist and Hegelian nonsense. Since it is always a process, knowing presumes a dialectical situation. And listen to this. Not strictly an I think, but a we think. Yeah, you heard that right. Not strictly an I think, like I think, therefore I am. And there's your Rene Descartes. But a we think. We think, therefore we are. Collectivism. Communism. Since it is always a process... Knowing presumes a dialectical situation, not strictly an I think, but a we think. It is not the I think that constitutes the we think, but rather the we think that makes it possible for me to think. We think, therefore I think, therefore I am. We think that makes it possible for me to think. I can only think because collectively we are thinking. So now you know why Freirean education activists and, say, mathematics education have insisted so fervently, including through state departments of education like California, Oregon, and Washington, that mathematics should de-emphasize individualism and individual achievement and should focus on collectivism and group achievement and to do so for equity. Because it is not the I think that matters, but a we think. And it is not the I think that constitutes the we think. It is not, we don't think because a bunch of individuals are thinking. It's the other way around. But rather, the we think that makes it possible for me to think. And that is the process of knowing. And it's a dialectical situation. Because the individual and the collective are, in fact, opposites. that have to be dialectically synthesized into individuals made to live in a society, a.k.a. socialist man. Are you starting to get it yet? Marx says the goal is to become socialist man that lives in socialist society so that socialist man and socialist society are co-continuous, that they're one thing. Man and society is one thing. We go back to Rousseau, savages made to live in cities. That was the original dialectic, by the way. That's the master-slave dialectic. Hegel was inspired by that. That was literally the thing that Hegel was inspired by. And so now we end up here looking at, and this is what I figured out, um, 
I don't know, late last year, I was like, what is Marcuse's big thing? What is Herbert Marcuse chasing? What is the dialectical synthesis that he wants? And he was like, oh, of course. He wants outsiders that are like insiders. He wants the margin made center, the margin located at the center, the margin made to be at the center, as a matter of fact. And then I realized it's individuals meant to live in society, but society is a collectivist endeavor. So it's individuals who have subordinated themselves to the collective and through dialectical bullshit magic, through the alchemy, by subordinating yourself to the collective, you become free. Because you're choosing to be part of the collective because you wouldn't want to live any other way because you have interjected values, interjected morals. So the goal is to become a collectivist pretending that you're more free because you're a collectivist because the collective is doing all the things for you so you don't have to do things you don't want to do. And we're back to Marx's entitlement complex, which is at the heart of this whole beast. In epistemological terms... Freire tells us the object of knowledge isn't a term of knowledge for the knowing subject, but a mediation of knowledge. It's a lot of words. What does that mean? The object of knowledge isn't a term of knowledge for the knowing subject, but a medium, a mediation of knowledge. So the object of knowledge is the thing that you're studying. It's the thing that you want to know or that you do know. Well, that thing is not a term of knowledge for the knowing subject, for the conscious. It is only a mediator. It's only a tool for learning only mediation of knowledge. The thing that you're trying to learn about, say mathematics lessons, isn't a mathematics lesson. It's a tool for another kind of learning if you're a knowing subject. It is the mediator of knowledge. So your mathematics lesson should be retooled to be a politics lesson dressed up in mathematical clothes. Your reading lesson should be a politics lesson dressed up in reading lesson clothes in a book. Your vocabulary lesson should be a politics lesson dressed up in vocabulary lesson clothes on and on. Your history lesson should be a politics lesson dressed up in historical clothes, because teaching is a political act in every subject, and it always presupposes a theory of man and a theory of society and a theory of politics. That was Freire's point at the beginning of chapter 6. If you want to get religious, by the way, your sermon as a lesson is not a sermon, and it's not even about the gospel. It's a politics lesson dressed up as a sermon. Every single thing is political. When they say the blah, blah, blah is political, the personal is political. Education is political. Your mom is political. Everything is political. Bullshit is political. What they are saying is the thing is a mediator of the political lesson. So everything, doesn't matter which church you go to, doesn't matter what school you go to, doesn't matter what class you're in, doesn't matter which subject you're studying, doesn't matter what thing you're interested in, all of that's merely a mediator for knowledge where knowledge is political knowledge, where political knowledge means Marxism. So the process of coming to know things for Freire isn't really one where the thing that you're learning matters at all in itself. The thing you're trying to learn, math or history or science or religion or whatever, the gospel, is just a tool. It's just a vehicle, a mediator of actual knowledge, which is political knowledge for the, quote, knowing subject. That means Freire in education always will hijack every other subject in order to deliver political literacy lessons. The point is political literacy. So your kids will not be able to read. They will not be able to do math. They won't have the slightest idea about, say, geography. But they will know how to problematize. They will know how to be an activist. They will be turned into a change agent for the Marxist pipe dream. Your child becomes their tool. To achieve it, actual learning is secondary, if even that. As a matter of fact, Freire has crapped all over it. 
At best, actual learning is a tool for their real Marxist education, but you don't want to have too much actual learning because if they did actual learning, they would learn how to participate in the existing society and thus maintain it, which is bad. So don't expect your kids to learn to read in a Freirian school. Don't expect them to get math mastery in a Freirian school. Don't expect them to be historically literate or conscious or anything in a Freirian school. Expect every single lesson to be twisted and turned into, whether it's art, whether it's music, it doesn't matter, twisted and turned into a political literacy lesson as soon as the stupid little activists that took over education can figure out how to torque it into one. So, for example, I was just in Idaho. I spoke with a mom there and her son, and he was required in his um, math class to write a mathography, which is a an autobiography of his experiences with mathematics, actually an autoethnography, which is a made-up tool. Uh, if you read any of our fake grievance studies papers, you'll know we made fun of autoethnographies all the time. It's a diary entry posing a scholarship. You, you do a diary entry and then pretend that there's generalizable social conclusions from your experience. Like you, famous one that I, I made fun of quite a lot was this clearly crackpot feminist girl goes on a date with a guy to go try to find a Wonder Woman doll at the toy store and can't find one and freaks out and says, this is why there's obviously everybody hates women. They don't put the Wonder Woman doll out, but there's all kinds of, you know, male action figure dolls or whatever. And Meanwhile, she's interweaving this with her experience on the date where she's unsure what to think of this guy who's being, you know, a perfectly kind of like manly gentleman kind of character. But then she's pissed off about men. And and, and this is supposed to be research that we now generalize. It's called the search for Wonder Woman. And she uses that to talk about how women have to search within themselves to see what it means to be Wonder Woman. But then that means you're also not included in society. It's just that's this. So this poor kid has to write a mathography. And this is happening all across the U.S. I've seen this on the Internet before I talked to the mom whose son had to do it. This is happening all across the U.S. where instead of learning algebra or learning mathematics, they're having the kids write about their history, their story of mathematics. So they can talk about how mathematics has made them feel in the past and makes them feel now. And it turns into a political lesson about the uh, ways that we learn mathematics and what mathematics expects of people and the idea that there's always one right answer, blah, 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 turns into a politics lesson dressed up as math through the vehicle of social-emotional learning because it's all about feelings, 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 which is where you can induce vulnerability, 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 and induce cult grooming, grooming, grooming. That's exactly what the hell Freirian education is about. Like any act of study, Freire tells us reading is not just a pastime, but a serious task in which readers attempt to clarify the opaque dimensions of their study. To read is to rewrite, not memorize, the contents of what is being read. We need to dispense with the, na- the naive idea of consuming what we read. Like Sartre, like Jean-Paul Sartre, or Sartre, how do you pronounce this guy's name? The existentialist Marxist, French guy. Like Sartre, we might call this artificial notion the nutritionist concept of knowledge, according to which uh, those who read and study do so to become, quote, fat intellectuals. This might justify such expressions as hungry for knowledge, <clears throat> thirst for knowledge, and to have an a- uh, to have or not have an appetite for understanding. They love their word games. They love their puns. Stupid word games. So reading has to be a serious task in which you rewrite what you're actually reading. 
You don't try to understand it on its own terms. You try to rewrite it. And that's, of course, where this grooming aspect is going to come in. There's your codification, problematization, decodification approach through the dialogical model. But we have to crap all over the nutritionist. He doesn't cite an education theorist, but he cites Sartre to crap on the nutritionist model, which is this kind of postmodern dumb idea where now they're playing a word game where you just, I get it. Like we all know about the dumb, smart person. They got a PhD and they don't know anything because they just learned to repeat stuff. That's what he's criticizing. But he's saying that that's the point of education unless the education becomes Marxist. Like, come on. The same artificial concept, he says, currently informs educational practice, see, in which knowledge is an act of transference. Educators are the possessors of knowledge, whereas learners are empty vessels to be filled by the educator's deposits. So now we switch from the nutrition to the bank, but it's the same thing. Hence, learners don't have to ask questions or offer any challenge since their position cannot be other than to receive passively the knowledge their educators deposit. If knowledge were static and consciousness empty, merely occupying a certain space in the body, this kind of educational practice would be valid. But this is not the case. Knowledge is not something that is made and finished. And consciousness is an intention toward the world. So now we're getting deep. Um, so he's saying if knowledge were static, if, if we weren't... There's two meanings here. It's so frustrating. This is so tedious. Talking about these people is so freaking tedious. It's like you almost literally just want to kick them because it's just so damn tedious. Knowledge is not something that is made and finished. No kidding. No kidding. We're still learning things. But what that, that's a big difference from what's actually being implied here. The things that we actually already know, we already know. If you go to the Marxist.org website, you can read where they talk about the ideas of knowledge and they talk about the ideas of truth. And that what he's saying here is something that sounds perfectly reasonable. Knowledge is not made and finished. No kidding. We're still learning things. But what you see on the Marxist.org definition of truth is that for Marxists, knowledge is contingent. It's relative. Knowledge, in fact, or truth, is a matter of a social formation, they say. And so France in the 18th century and America in the 20th century have completely different knowledges. And it's not even just geographical. In fact, geography is not important. This is a huge thing. The postmodernists, you know, culture this, culture A, culture B, and they have different knowledges and we can't compare them. Cultural relativism, blah, blah, blah. That's not important. There's knowledge today. There's knowledge tomorrow. There's knowledge the next day. And those are not the same. They're not the same. Because for the Marxists, what knowledge means is knowledge of how to turn the revolution one more turn. How to be Marxist and how to be critically conscious in the present circumstances. That's the only valid knowledge. So then when you have your revolution, like you talked about in the previous chapter, and you get into a new set of circumstances, what did he say you need? More critical consciousness. So that you could have another revolution. So you can get to another set of circumstances. So it's actually before, now, and later have different knowledges. Because knowledge is a matter of truth, and truth is a matter of a social formation, and to quote them directly from the, the entry on the Marxist.org uh, entry for truth, as Goethe said, they, they reference Goethe 
Knowledge must be relative, as Goethe said, because everything withers away. So that which we consider knowledge now is useful to get a revolution in today's society. That which we consider knowledge after that revolution is going to be useful for getting the next revolution. That which is considered knowledge after that revolution is going to be what's useful to get the next revolution. And so the dialectic progresses. If knowledge were static, so now you hear, you see stupid double meanings are everywhere. Knowledge is not something that's made and finished. In fact, knowledge will be something completely different later. But you think he's talking about, oh yeah, we're still learning things. And the second you call him or somebody on it, they'll say, no, that's all it means is we're still learning things. Just look at how we thought Newton had it all right, and then we figured out Einstein. Oh, Thomas Kuhn, there's a paradigm shift. And like I said, you just want to kick these people. Just kick them. Don't kick anybody, good Lord. It's so frustrating and tedious. So knowledge is not something that's made and finished, and consciousness is an intention. So consciousness is empty. What is he talking about? No, nobody thinks that. But consciousness is an intention toward the world. Yeah, to create a revolution. So he's obviously just setting up his freaking dialogical model here, wherein the educator uh, learns about oppression from his knowing subject, so-called learners, who are not empty vessels, who do not have static knowledge and empty consciousness, and then he will groom those people into the Marxist consciousness, which is the intention toward the world. And the intention is to destroy it under the brand name transforming. You're going to transform the world as a change agent, which means destroy. It means disrupt and dismantle. They tell you that too. Transform means disrupt and dismantle. Build back better. That's what comes next. How does he describe this in humanistic terms, meaning Marxist? And I have to take another little sidebar. We talked about that. I think this is in the last one too. Humanism for Marxists means Marxism. Marx believed that his theory and his theory alone humanized the world because the human is the conscious subject that knows he's a conscious subject that can envision what he wants to create in the world. Thus, by creating the thing, he puts some of himself in the world. Then he sees himself in that thing he created as creator. But in the meantime, what he did was he brought his humanness into that thing. If you take a tree and turn it into a, say, picnic table, You've humanized that wood. You've turned it into something useful to humans, as a value to humans. You've humanized it. And you did so by envisioning what it would be in your head, which is the uniquely human process. So you're turning the world into a thing made by men for men. Meanwhile, you see yourself in it, so you humanize yourself. You say, what? what is humanizing? Remember that whole discussion Freire had in the previous chapter about the difference between animalizing and humanizing? And he says, animalizing doesn't make any sense. And he quotes Marx, and he talks about this thing that Marx brought up a bunch of times about bees and about spiders. Freire adds horses because you got to have different animals. And what he's saying is it doesn't make any, you can't animalize the world because animals don't have that conscious vision. They don't have subjective capacity. They are not subjects. If they were, they would, he says, they would have an endless quest to animalize the world, whether that's, you know, to make it more like horses, to make it more like whatever. Humans are different. And that's the existential scream we find in seven, in chapter seven in this book behind all of Marxism. They're screaming, we are not animals. We are not animals. We don't believe in God, but we are not animals. We are not animals. We are not animals. We're screaming it. How are we different from animals? It's the whole thing. Marx's ontology of man is the whole thing. We're different than animals are. Oh my God, we're different than animals are. And the reason is because we're human. And what makes us human is that we can envision as a conscious subject. As a conscious subject, we can then humanize that which is in the world. We can take our human capacity, do something in the world, make that thing fit for humans, make it something humans are proud of that va humans value. And then we see ourselves that, oh, wow, 
We are the kind of animal that can change the world for ourselves. We don't merely adapt to the world, was what Freire said. We adapt the world to ourselves. We make it something more. But we also do that not just with objects, but as Marx said and Freire said, and he's saying here, man is his own object. Society is man's object as well. Other men are man's object. So we do this with ourselves and with each other. We have to humanize ourselves. We humanize society. We humanize the world. So when we hear humanism in something Marxist, he's actually talking about the Marxist theology. So in humanistic terms, Freire tells us, knowledge involves a constant unity between action and reflection upon reality. Because it's still Hegel's speculative dialectical method. That's praxis. That's the theoretical idea and the practical idea trying to come back into union. Like our presence in the world, our consciousness transforms knowledge, acting on and thinking about what enables us to reach the stage of reflection. So did you hear that? Our consciousness transforms knowledge. Knowledge is not static. Here, and not just in postmodernism, we see a truly Marxist theory of knowledge itself, which is what I told you Freire does. He Marxifies education, but he Marxifies knowledge too. Knowledge is a special bourgeois property if you think that it's static. If the things that we know about the world are going to be things we still know about the world later, like that men are men and women are women. Men and women are different. That the moon is a rock going around the world. Knowledge is a special bourgeois property that has to be transformed, has to be made a matter of a social formation. And then in the next turn of the revolution, it has to be made into a new social formation, fitting to that context. Da 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 da. So math and reading are not about learning to are not about learning math or learning to read. They are transformed into vehicles for political literacy, which is Marxism, in both thought and action, which is exactly what you see happening in the schools, especially down the left coast, but in schools across all 50 states, probably as well, not probably, definitely as well in Canada, and probably throughout most of the Western world. The trauma-informed care stuff, by the way, started in Australia, in schools. That was a whole Australian thing. I don't think trauma-informed care itself started in Australia, but it's delivering into into education was Australian. The whole Western world's poisoned with this garbage. And so what does Freire say? He says, this is precisely why we must take our presence in the world as the focus of our critical analysis. By returning to our previous experiences, we grasp the knowledge of those experiences. So now what are we seeing? We're seeing our shift from knowledge to lived experience. We're shifting out of knowledge into other ways of knowing, or epistemology into other ways of knowing. So ways of knowing are transformed knowledge. Activist political ideology posing as knowledge fills the gap. That's what's going on. We see the shift. Right here is the shift from established ways of knowing to other ways of knowing, which you've already heard about. So from knowledge to diverse knowledges. And those are a matter of social formations, etc. The shift to lived experience, to phenomenology, back into the Hegel. This is It all weaves together very tightly when you kind of understand what's going on. Then he says it's by returning to our previous experiences, we grasp the knowledge of those experiences. And that's what you're then going to data mine in the dialogical model. And then you're going to use to create your generative concepts grooming approach. And you're going to then use in the codification, decodification process to groom the kids. The more, he tells us, the more we can uncover reasons to explain why we are as we are, 
the more we can also grasp the reason behind our reality and thus overcome our naive understanding. So he's also pointing out then that everything that's not Freirian or Marxist already is naive, and this is more Gnostic cult manipulation. They know the secret. They alone are conscious and know the direction that history has to take and the way that knowledge must change. Knowledge must change in order to achieve the history they hope to achieve, which is why, in fact, if we go up back to the truth entry in the Marxist.org encyclopedia glossary, what we see in that glossary is that they say in the second paragraph that, you know, they give a variety of different types of um, theories of knowledge. And they say, you know, the, the rationalists believe that knowledge is located in reason and that the empiricists believe that it's located in experiment. And uh, what is he said? The pragmatists believe that it's a matter of practical outcome. And then the Marxists are most like the pragmatists. It's about practical outcome, but where theory and practice are wedded together. In other words, that which is true is that which what, that makes Marxism work in the present context, which changes from one context to the, to the next, which is what Freire says all the time. It must be in your context. And that's partly because what Goethe said, all truth is relative because everything withers away. He even tells us straight up that I haven't read anything into him here that isn't actually there. He says, even as I write, no matter how often readers read what I am writing now, we together must employ a critical analysis, as I have already stated. That is, we must use our experience or that of other subjects in the field as the focus of our reflection. So we're going to use lived experience as we attempt to increase our understanding. Then we can begin to understand the real meaning of the language of our theme. The process of political literacy, where the noun literacy appears metaphorically. Did you get that? The term literacy appears metaphorically in the process of political literacy? Given the presence of this metaphor, let's begin our analysis by briefly reviewing the process of adult literacy in terms of linguistics, which in itself is also political, a process upon which the metaphor is based. Methodologically, this involves the consideration of different practices in the field of adult literacy and presupposes different ways of perceiving illiterates. Two kinds of antagonistic practices that reflect those ways of perceiving illiterates are usually called domesticating and liberating. Okay, so this is, I'm telling you, the whole point for him, we're not even, literacy is a metaphor now. And we're going to we're going to go through the process of political literacy because literacy is, the, the noun literacy appears metaphorically. You're not actually going to learn to read. You're going to learn political literacy. Now let's talk about that instead. And methodologically, what we're going to boil this down to is, well, you only have two options. It's either going to be domesticating, that means everything that's not his way, or it's going to be liberating, which is apparently good, which is his way. And we've already heard a whole bunch about these different practices, the Marxification of education, the generative concepts approach, the dialogical grooming model, the codification, problematization, decodification technique that he uses to do it. And now we see yet another manipulative Marxist false dichotomy. There's his liberating approach, about which you'll be shocked when you hear it, what it entails. It's literally religious as crap. So there's his liberating approach which is you're going to be, you are not going to believe what in the world he says about this in this chapter and the next chapter, especially the next chapter. He literally compares it to Easter. Like he literally compares 
you as educator and learner both to, to Jesus. I'm not kidding. So there's his liberating approach. This is a false dichotomy we were talking about. And his domesticating, the, the domesticating approach, which is obviously bad, obviously pejorative. You don't want to be domesticated like a horse. You don't want to be domesticated like a bee. You don't want to be domesticated like a worker working for somebody else's vision of the world. You have to be liberated to make your vision of the world. So do you want your kids to be sheep or do you want them to be Marxist? That's what he's at, he's telling you. That's the, that's all it's on offer. Would you like your kids to be sheep or Marxists? If you're not a Marxist, you're a sheep. Because you bought into the ideology and you have false consciousness. That's all he's suggesting your choices are. Sheep or Marxists. You can have a trans kid or a dead kid. There's another one, isn't there? Something like a healthy, normal kid, which is a domesticated kid, wouldn't be allowed because that would be stable and stable, stability is not permitted. So you can't have a healthy, normal kid, which is a domesticated kid. You can have a trans kid or a dead kid. And these false dichotomies are everywhere. This comparison that I just made, I know it's a little different, but it's not flippant. It's nearly exactly the same thing, just in a different Marxist domain. In fact, if we just shift from the, the educational domain being Marxified by Freire to the queer theory domain, it is literally exactly the same. And gender Marxism or queer Marxism, whichever one you prefer, your kid can be domesticated or liberated, including sexually. And if you don't affirm it, your kid will be dead due to the destabilization that they groomed into your child. It's sick. It's evil. I want to start swearing. I want to start swearing. My notes are full of swearing here. I actually just wrote swearing into my notes. I hate communists. People will say I'm exaggerating about all of this, but really all I've done is switch from Freire's quasi-material domain about domesticating and liberating education into the new ascendant queer cultural domain, and it's the same damn satanic thing. So, you can either have a queer kid or a domesticated kid, and your domesticated kid is probably going to be a dead kid. Because he's death-loving. It's a death cult to not transition. Iron Law of Vogue Projection never ever misses. Freire now turns to elaborating on this false dichotomy and straw man even further throughout the entirety of the next section, which he in which he describes and contrasts the domesticating versus liberating education. This is really important because um, I don't think there's a better example of uh, the Iron Law of Oak projection in print. It might be the best example of the Iron Law of Oak projection, which is really saying something given some of the things they've said, but also because liberatory education is now becoming a huge buzzword, and people are only starting to realize that's the next big step. So you've got to pay attention to this liberating thing. So his, so Freire says you have two options, which are liberating and domesticating. All of this SEL, all of this CRT, all of this culturally relevant education, etc., is all pushing toward in a direction called liberatory education. The liberatory education model is the next step in this equity-based Marxist-based education program. And so here's its root. Shock. It's in Freire. What does Freire say? It's not important whether educators are conscious of following a domesticating practice, since the essential point is the manipulative dimension between educators and learners, by which the latter are made passive objects of action by the former. So what he's saying is it doesn't matter if the teacher knows that they're trying to brainwash the students, to domesticate the students. 
It doesn't matter. Maybe they think they're doing best practices. Iron Law of Woke Projection is going to be so thick through this that I think you're going to fall out of your chair. Your face might fall off. It's so Iron Law of Woke Projection. You've never heard more clear woke projection in your life. So it doesn't matter if the educator knows that they're doing a domesticating practice. It doesn't matter if they're aware of it. The essential point is that it's manipulative because you're manipulating kids into becoming passive objects of education who are just going to learn whatever the society already produces. They're just going to reproduce the present. They're going to learn to reproduce the present. This is really one of the most aggravating examples of the Iron Law of Oak Projection I think I've ever read. That he says it does, he's literally saying it doesn't matter that the teacher probably might might be legitimately an evil bourgeois domesticator, a dominator on purpose, subjugating the students intentionally, or maybe they think they're just doing educational best, best practice, but it doesn't matter. It's manipulative in all cases, which is exactly the perfect description for this Marxist education ever. And it doesn't matter if the weird teacher with the green hair on libs of TikTok knows that that person is destabilizing and grooming kids or not. They might think they're just doing the best thing. But the point is, it's manipulative. This is the most egregious... I'm going to read the whole sentence again now that you know what it means. The most egregious Iron Law Vogue projection I think I've ever heard in my life. It is not important whether educators are conscious of following a domesticating practice since the essential point is the manipulative dimension between educators and learners by which the latter are made passive objects by the former. As passive individuals... Learners are not invited to participate creatively in the process of their learning. Instead, they are filled by the educator's words. With the cultural framework of this practice, educators are presented to the learners as though, as though the latter were separated from life, as though language thought were possible without reality. And remember that reality means the Marxist interpretation of reality, according to Marxists. In such educational practice, the social structures are never discussed as a problem that needs to be revealed. Quite the contrary, these structures are made obscure by different forms of action that reinforce the learner's false consciousness. In any case, in criticizing this practice, I think it is necessary to make clear that whether working at the elementary, secondary, or university level, or in adult literacy, a self-aware bourgeois educator cannot avoid being engaged in this kind of action. It would be extremely naive to expect the dominant classes to develop a type of education that would enable subordinate classes to perceive social injustices critically. Not only is this more iron law of projection, it's literally a conspiracy theory. Even when they're aware, educators know that they're keeping dominance in place. That's why they struck, they, they did this. And why? Because it would be extremely naive to think that the dominant classes might develop a type of education that would enable subordinate classes to perceive that they're being subordinated. Bitch. You're not even teaching kids to read. You're teaching them political literacy instead. You're not even teaching kids to do math. You're making them file mathographies and talking about their feelings. You're giving them 0% of the critical thinking tools necessary to be able to point out and figure out that they're under a domesticating Marxist frame pretending to be liberating that's going to enslave them. You're giving them literally none of the tools to be able to figure out how anything in the world actually works. That's exactly what you and you alone, Marxist educator, do. It would be extremely naive to expect the Marxists to develop a type of education that would enable the people Marxism enslaves to perceive the social injustices that they perpetrate. It would be a true sentence. 
But it's literally a conspiracy theory. Why would I apply a conspiracy theory back to Marxism? Because it's a friggin' conspiracy. That's why. It's not a theory. It's literally a conspiracy. The people in charge, the party, create a conspiracy to keep themselves in power. That's what communism does. That's a literal conspiracy. This, he tells us, and he's talking about his total straw man, this demonstrates that there is, uh, that there is no truly neutral education. Of course, nothing's neutral, so you have to apply the good politics versus the bad politics. An ingenious consciousness, though, sorry, an ingenuous consciousness, though, might interpret this statement as, uh, might interpret this statement by attributing a lack of neutrality to an educational practice in which educators simply don't respect learners' expressiveness. Sounds like culturally responsive education. This, in fact, uh, this is, in fact, what characterizes the domesticating style of education. So here, like I just said, we clearly see the roots of culturally relevant and culturally responsive teaching. If you don't respect learners' expressiveness in the vaguest possible sense, and to which you're going to groom kids into this, um, then you're domesticating your students rather than radicalizing them to be like Che Guevara, you know, who is their role model according to the previous chapter. Because he cared about the people. He loved the people. I mean, he shot all the people, but he loved the people. And if they didn't do what he wanted, he shot them. But he loved them. And he never gave up hope that if he shot enough of them, they would join his cause. That's kind of what he said. And you can see the roots of this failure of discipline in the classrooms. This restorative justice disaster, you can see the roots of that right here. We have to respect the learner's expressiveness. So if they start acting like a bunch of heathens and animals and uh, hoodlums and criminals, well, yeah, that's their expressiveness. A riot is just the, the, the voice of the, the voiceless. We heard that. So you see the roots of the failures of the discipline in the classrooms under the brand name Restorative Justice but also more broadly in the sense that students are never really to be wrong if they're talking about their experiences or something that has feelings behind it. And so they shouldn't have to behave in certain ways or get right answers. They merely have to be continually groomed into the political perspective that's non-domesticating. In other words, it's Marxist. What's the consequence of this leap of logic from his straw man of what education is to a manipulation that's pretending to make a point? that there's no neutral education. We're not grooming, you're grooming. Everybody's grooming. Raising children, grooming. Church, grooming. Parents, grooming. We're not grooming, you're grooming. So we have to groom. That's exactly what they say. We're not groomers, you're groomers. So we have to groom and grooming is good. So we're groomers now. That's exactly the trajectory the discourse has followed, which by the way, I predicted. You're grooming your children and the kids in class, your students, into oppression. You're reproducing it. We're grooming them to overcome it, so grooming is good when we do it. Grooming is bad when you do it. You're the real groomer in the bad sense. We're doing something good. So we should groom, and you must not. Repressive grooming. This is the same Marxist manipulation we've seen 50 times already. Everything's political, so we have to use our politics. We have to inject our politics into it because your politics are already hiding there and you just refuse to recognize them. And our politics are liberatory, so we need them. Same trick over and over and over again. But now it's educating in a liberating way and educating in a domesticating way. Exactly the same thing. Education of a liberating character, he says, is a process by which the educator invites learners to recognize and unveil reality, reality critically. Of course it is. Liberating education is critical theory. Ta-da!
The domestication practice tries to impart a false consciousness to learners. Well, here's our iron law of book projection, isn't it? Resulting in a facile adaptation to their reality. Mm-hmm. Communism doesn't know how. Iron law of book projection strikes again. Whereas a liberating practice cannot be reduced to an attempt on the part of the educator to impose freedom on learners. So either you teach critical theory or domesticating learners, but if you do it wrong, you're still domesticating learners. The iron law of book projection never, ever, ever misses. He says, although in a domesticating education, there is a necessary dichotomy between those who manipulate and those who are manipulated in education for freedom, there are no subjects who liberate or objects who are liberated since there is no dichotomy between subject and object. So, I mean, how thick can the Iron Law of Oak Projection get here? Although in a domesticating education, there is a necessary dichotomy between those who manipulate and those who are manipulated. But when it's liberatory grooming education, there is no difference. There is no distinction. There's no boundary. We're all just, come back in the room here with me and let's learn some things. The domesticating process, he tells us, is in itself prescriptive. The liberating is dialogical. How handy that his grooming method is the only valid way to educate and the only way that doesn't count as grooming and manipulation, the one that's literally grooming. I'm telling you, it's pure Iron Law of Oak projection. Education for domestication is an act of transferring knowledge, whereas education for freedom is an act of knowledge and a process of transforming action that should be exercised on reality. So here's what Freire has set up. Every approach to education is manipulative grooming that domesticates learners, except his approach. And the point of his approach, the narrow way out of that evil catastrophe of domesticating and grooming, is to make education focus on creating Marxists who will go out as change agents to transform the world and knowledge through their activism. And could you find a better summary of the failures of education today than that? It's because our kids go to Paulo Freire's schools. And so why, let me take a a half second here, like 10 minutes probably. Why is the Iron Law of Woke Projection? I honestly, this is going to be really rude, but I actually think that you see a massive failure of imagination in a lot of people, and in particular in a lot of Marxists, like Freire. They They conceive of the world, and they conceive of everybody in the world the way that they conceive of the world, right? They can't see outside of their own bias. So for them, they look at how they think education works, and they're like, okay, education's super domesticating. It's super grooming. And then they think, no, you're the ones who are grooming. That's how education already works, and we're going to do something different. But what they actually do, it's like the, it's literally the Iron Law of Oak projection arises because it's how they think about the world. They're confessing. That's why it's called confession by projection. When they say something like, you just want to, as the parents, just want to groom kids into whatever, blah, 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 they think that raising a child is an act of grooming. That's what they think. They think that it is not parenting, that it is not the parent-child relationship. It's grooming. That's what they think. They're telling you what they think. And then the model that they then produce is based on the way that they think. They think everything is a conspiracy theory because they are running a conspiracy theory. They think everybody colludes against them to keep them out because if they had the power, they would collude against everybody to keep them out. Again and again and again. They say that the privileged are entitled because they're entitled. 
Iron Law of Oak Projection works is true because we're dealing with basically somebody who has a limited range of understanding of how the world works. And they project that into everybody's heads. Oh, if I was the teacher, this is how I would act. Therefore, that's what teaching really is. Iron Law of Oak Projection never misses. They just have to do this weird language game around it to where they flip it over and make it inverted and upside down because they know those things are bad. That the way that they conceive of the world, which is an application of power to get their way, they know that's bad. So then they say the other people do that. And that they are the one people who are not doing that. That's all it comes down to. That's all it comes down to. But let's get back to Freire. We're off on a tangent here. Because our kids go to Paulo Freire schools. And we just said, Paulo Freire thinks that only his method works. Everything else is domesticating. If you don't make your kids into Marxists, then you're domesticating them. And when they're Marxists, you're teaching them to transform the world. That's all Marxists want to do through their activism, which is supposed to bring theory and practice into a dialectical relationship. And he says, since they're not marginal beings who need to be restored to health or saved, learners are viewed as members of the large family of the oppressed. Oh, learners are oppressed by being learners. Answers for their situation do not reside in their learning to read alienating stories, but in their making history that will actualize their lives. So they have to be change agents instead of learning to read, apparently, alienating stories. I love this focus on being saved, since they're not marginal beings who need to be saved. And then he's literally calling his program liberating, which is saving them from bondage. And he's like, we're not the ones trying to save your kids. You are. You're acting like a messiah. The same damn Iron Law Woke projection I just explained. So this whole thing, like they think that they actually are messiahs. But of course, part of their game is that they break things and then they save you from the thing they, they claim to save you from the thing they broke by taking control over your life and saying, oh, we'll order the solution for you. But I love this too. Learners are viewed as members of the large family of the oppressed. Answers for their situation do not reside in their learning to read alienating stories, but in their making history that will actualize their lives. Your kids shouldn't learn to read. They must be taught that they're oppressed, so they'll learn to make history as illiterate, know-nothing activists doing the work, the dirty work of communist groomers. And it's all about these freaking word games over and over and over again. So next we turn to word games about what it means to be literate or illiterate. And Freire accomplishes the bait and switch that I've been explaining about this book from the very start. He says, if we now begin to consider the problem of political literacy, our point of departure might be an analysis of political illiteracy. From the linguistic point of view, so word game point of view, if an illiterate is one who does not know how to read or write, a political illiterate, regardless of whether she or he knows how to read and write, is one who has an ingenuous perception of humanity in its relationship with the world. This person has a naive outlook on social reality, which for this one is a given. That is, social reality is a fait accompli rather than something that is still in the making. So this is Marx's becoming idea. History is becoming. You're a part of history. You should be conscious to the fact that you are a history maker. You have to understand your role 
in changing history. You have the unique conscious perspective to guide history to its intended destination. And a political illiterate is somebody without that critical consciousness. That's what he says, regardless of whether or not he or she knows how to read or write. It doesn't matter whether you know how to read or write. To be politically literate means knowing that you can transform the world, that is, that you're a Marxist, whether you can read or write at all. So learning to read or write is a freaking afterthought. Actual literacy is placed second explicitly as an afterthought in literacy education when it's Freyerian literacy education. How do you think it's going to work in math? How do you think it's going to work in science and history, etc.? And as we've applied this stuff now since 1985, increasingly, we've reached a point where roughly on average about a third of our students are at grade level competency in any of the basic subjects. How did this crisis in education arise? We adopted a failure of an education model as the primary education model and educated literally all of our teachers and almost all of our administrators in this education model for 40 years. And then this is when we do our favorite Freire question and you pause and you ask yourself, how in the world could this have been adopted in North American education? How in the world did nobody say no? And the answer, of course, is Marxist infiltration, Trotsky-style entryism, a massive pre-existing Marxist subversion in the discipline of education had already taken place, especially in the colleges of education, whether that's uh, from Dewey, whether it's from, I think it's Vygotsky is the, is the Russian guy's name I couldn't say last time. I went and looked that up like I tend to do when I can't figure something out. Who, uh, whether, whether it's any of these Michael Apple, uh, Stanley Aronowitz, these people we talked about briefly in the critical turn in education book, um, they paved the way. Giroux got 100 Marxists tenured as education faculty in colleges of education across North America. That's how this happened. You read this crap and you're like, how in the world could anybody have said yes to this? And it was that they placed their people and they placed educational theory for almost a century leading up to this to make it so. And now, all of our kids go to Paulo Ferreri schools because of the tireless work of these activists who transform, transformed education this way. And so the result is, obviously, we have to decolonize everything now so that our education become about political education, political literacy, and Marxism. That's what decolonizing is really about. It is impossible, he says. It is impossible for us to escape the real world without critically assuming our presence in it. If we are in the sciences, for instance, we might try to hide in what we regard as the neutrality of scientific pursuits, indifferent to how our findings are used, even uninterested in considering for whom or for what interests we are working. Usually, when questioned about this, we respond vaguely that we work in the interest of humanity. So science is political, because why? because we're indifferent to how our findings might get used by people. Maybe we discover some kind of, you know, form of propulsion, and now military people are going to use our form of propulsion. So we intrinsically did a political thing, even though really all we were doing is figuring out how to propel a rocket. We maybe aren't even interested, if we're scientists, in considering for whom or for what interests we're working. So what is the flip side of this? What does science education have to become under this liberating approach then? Well, you have to always think about how our findings might be used so they can't contradict Marxism 
and we have to be interested in considering for whom and for what interests might our results come out. So if you get the wrong results, you get the results that might help somebody you don't want to have helped, you have to squash those results. That's Lysenkoism. So science has to be remade to be political because it's already political because in trying to not be political, we aren't paying attention to the politics that might follow from our science. Do you see the trick? So the sciences must be politicized and made into political education. Your kids are not going to learn science. They're going to learn this perverted version of science that's equitable and diverse and all this other horseshit that's not real. If we practice religion, he says, we might establish an unfeasible separation between humanity and transcendence. If we work in the social sciences, we might treat our society under study as though we are not its partic- or are not participants in it. In our celebrated impartiality, we might approach this real world as if we were wearing gloves and masks in order to not contaminate or be contaminated by it. So everything must be politicized such that it grooms people into Marxism or else it domesticates them, whether it's science, whether it's social science, whether it's religion. That's what he's saying. So you have to retool them the other way around. Which is really funny because we treat our society under study as though we are not participants in it, but that's exactly what the abstract problematization phase is. All that they do differently is then use the grooming phase to to decodify and make you believe that you're oppressed based on the way that they're participating in these things. Our concept of history. So we've got science, we've got religion, we've got social science, now we get history. Our concept of history can be mechanistic and fatalistic. History is what took place, not what's in the making or what will come. The present is something that should be normalized, whereas the future, as a repetition of the present, becomes the maintenance of the status quo. This is domesticating education he's describing. Sometimes the political illiterate perceives the future, not as a repetition of the present, but as something pre-established, a fait accompli. But both views are domesticated visions of the future. The first domesticates the present, which should be repeated, and the second reduces the future to something inexorable. Both negate people as beings of praxis, and in so doing, they also reject history. They both suffer from a lack of hope. So if you don't teach kids to be change agents, to change this, to, to, to literally make history, to change their conditions, then you're domesticating people, you're taking out the uh, idea that they are beings of praxis, you tell them they can't actually change the world in any substantive way, it doesn't matter if they figure out how to cure cancer, and they lack a suffer they, they 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 suffer from a lack of hope. You can't make this up. Unless you're on Paulo Ferreri's Marxist path, you don't realize, he's saying, the history is actually the sum total of the human drama, including in the future, and that you are in this particular chapter, and as such you are this chapter's author. And if you don't know that, you're obviously hopeless because you've already been groomed to believe that you're oppressed. That's what he's saying. So instead, you should learn that history is in the making. You're this chapter's author, and if you do the right things with the right consciousness and the right solidarity, then you can be a change agent to transform the future, which is history. And if you think it's been exciting so far, it starts to get really exciting after this. Freire, his next part, is the part that convinced me by, beyond any doubt. I'm reading this book. You know, I was going through the, uh, the critical turn in education. I stumble upon this. I said, we're going to go through the books as we come to them. This is like the first paragraph of the chapter one, which we're still technically in. And I started reading this book and I was like, eh, it's kind of boring. I got to chapter six and I was like, okay, it's kind of important. I got to chapter seven. I'm like, what in the hell is this book? I get to this 
part in chapter eight and I was like, whoa. And I read chapter nine. And I'm like, that's it. We got to do a lot of podcasts on this book. So we're about to get to that part. And that's where I realized I've got to do a deep, deep dive on this book with you. Probably deeper than I need to do uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed or Pedagogy of Hope or anything else. Education for Political Literacy is the title of the next section. And in that, we learn what this is all really about. And he introduces it here, and in the next chapter, he goes completely nutty. And this is the, the Jesus Easter stuff. Let us now move, he says, from analyzing the process of literacy for domestication to discussing generally a few ideas about what education should be doing from a critical point of view. That is how education, by demystifying reality, that's your codification-decodification game, which means you find out how problematic it is and become a Marxist, can help educators and learners overcome political illiteracy. So now the purpose of education is just to overcome political illiteracy in every subject, like we just heard. I will occasionally refer to points previously discussed. I trust that these reiterations, instead of irritating my readers, oh, we're irritated, Paulo, will help us better understand our common theme. I'll begin by restating a basic point. If we don't transcend the idea of education as pure transference of a knowledge that merely describes reality, we will prevent critical consciousness from emerging and thus reinforce political illiteracy. Did you get that? This is the basic point. This is what all this political literacy, this is the whole point of Freire's education. If we don't transcend the idea of education as pure transference of a knowledge that merely describes reality, we will prevent critical consciousness from emerging and thus reinforce political illiteracy. So this political illiteracy means not being a Marxist. So that's good. We want that. We want to reinforce that. And he says, we will prevent critical consciousness from emerging. So if we want to prevent critical consciousness from emerging, all we have to do is use education as a means of transferring knowledge that describes reality. That's what it's actually the logical form that he's provided. If you don't want to be a Marxist, make education about describing reality. That's his, what he's saying. But he's saying it the other way around. If we don't save the day, if we don't come up with a new way to educate, then we're never going to be Marxists. <laughs> and I'm, to me, I'm like, good. Don't buy the snake oil. If our power of choice, he says, if our power of choice is really revolutionary, we have to transcend all kinds of education in order to achieve another. One in which to know and to transform reality are reciprocal prerequisites. The essential point to highlight is transcending a domesticating educational practice for one that is liberating. I stress again that it is impossible in a truly liberating praxis for the educator to follow a domesticating model. So it's his way or your evil. We're going to completely revamp education his way. It's either Marxism or you're evil and naive. And so what is this really about? Although the educator in the domesticating model always remains the educator of learners, the educator for freedom has to die, so to speak as the exclusive educator of learners, that is, as the one educating them. Conversely, the educator must propose to learners that they too die, as the exclusive learners of educators, so that they can be reborn as real learner educators of the, educa- of the self-educator and the self-learner. Without this mutual death and rebirth, education for freedom is impossible. You've got to be born again into his system. You have to die to your ideological life 
and you have to kill your students in the ideological sense and be reborn as a Marxist. That's what Freerian education is. And you have to groom your students into the same thing. And you think, wow, no, you're, he's just using a metaphor. The educator for freedom has to die as the exclusive educator of learners, that is, as the one educating them. Conversely, the educator must propose to learners that they too die as the exclusive learners of educators so that they can be reborn as real learners, educators of the self-educator and self-learner. Without this mutual death and rebirth, education for freedom is impossible. Everything's domesticating education unless you literally, metaphorically, ideologically, I guess, die and are reborn, born again as a Marxist, and induce the same in your students. If you don't do that, you're doing domesticating education, you're not doing liberating education. It is impossible to educate for freedom. And it goes further. In such a view, at the very moment when she or he begins the process, the educator must be prepared to die as the exclusive educator of the learners. She or he cannot be an educator for freedom if she or he only substitutes the content of another educational practice for a bourgeois practice, and thus preserves the form of that practice. In essence, the educator has to live the profound meaning of Easter. Bold statement. The educator has to live the profound meaning of Easter. You have to die to the world that you think you know and be resurrected so that your flock may be saved. Is that what you're saying, Paulo? That's what it means to become an educator of political literacy to Paulo Ferreri. You have to die and be reborn. The educator has to live the profound meaning of Easter. In chapter 9, he has whole paragraphs talking about this Easter stuff. And I was like, holy shit, what is this? And this is a book the Marxist educators of the day, 1985, said yes to and ruined North American education. Where does he go from here? You think, whoa, where could that go? He then says that only China and Cuba get this right. He makes the point that the CCP is not bureaucratic, and its revolution is perpetual. That was going great. It was 1985. We're like four years out from the Tiananmen Square massacre. One of the great merits, he says, of the Chinese Cultural Revolution was its rejection of static, anti-dialectical, or over-conservative concepts of China's history. Never mind the fact that they created a one-China, 5,000-year history that's fake. Fake China. Never mind that. One of the great merits of the Chinese Cultural Revolution was its rejection of static, anti-dialectical, or over-conservative concepts of China's history. Here there seems to be a permanent mobilization of the people and the sense of consciously creating and recreating society. In China, to be conscious is not a slogan or a ready-made idea. To be conscious is a radical way of being, a way characteristic of humanity. I mean, like I said, maybe we shouldn't judge him. This was... This book was published four years before the massacre at Tiananmen Square. Maybe he didn't know that Mao had literally published a book called The Little Red Book that was just a book of slogans, and it was the most important piece of literature in Maoist China. It's not about slogans. I've seen the slogans. I've been to China. I've seen where they painted on the sides of buildings in the Chinese characters, and it shows like the little kind of Chinese communist art that we're all familiar with, where all the people look like they're wearing like little puffy suits. And it says... 
my Chinese is not good enough to say it in Chinese, um, but it says, man, woman, boy, girl, we are all the same. Uh, so yeah, how does that go? I'm not going to butcher it. Um, it's like, uh, what is it? Uh, non-run, new-run, non-high, new-high, something, we are all the same. Anyway, I used to know how to say it. Point is, it says men, women, boy, man, woman, boy, girl, we're all the same. No slogans, though. It's not reduced to slogans. White silence is violent. Listen to science. It's not reduced to slogans. So he praises China. That's who's getting it right. Frickin' China. That's who's getting it right. Of course, it's probably not a big surprise that this is the guy that got brought to America when Henry Kissinger wrote him an invitation letter as Secretary of State, then, is it? So finally, Freire in this chapter turns to the process of conscientization. Conscientization is a process that all of chapter 7 was about. It was about the process of becoming conscious, and this is now going to be attached to the idea of political literacy, replacing literacy. He says, one of the most important points in conscientization is to provoke recognition of the world, not as a given world, but as a world dynamically in the making. So we're back to Hegel's becoming world. The dialectical faith of leftism is here. Conscientization always involves a constant clarification of what remains hidden within us while we move about in the world, though we are not necessarily regarding the world as the object of our critical reflection, which sounds an awful lot like Robin D'Angelo. We have to look inward. This is where Freire's big contribution is. So the, the profound meaning of Easter, as we're going to hear in the next chapter, takes place inside you. I know very well then implied in this critical reflection about the real world as something made in an unveiling of yet another reality, conscientization cannot ignore the transforming action that produces this unveiling and concrete realization. Uh-huh. So now we're going to produce another reality, a pseudo-reality, right? I know very well that implied in this critical reflection about the real world as something made in an unveiling of yet another reality. Okay. And again, I know very well that to simply substitute an ingenuous perception of reality for a critical one, it is sufficient for the oppressed to liberate themselves. To do so, they need to organize in a revolutionary manner and to transform the real world in a revolutionary manner. The sense of organization requires a conscious action, making clear what's unclear and the profound vision of consciousness. So, for Freire, the point of a political education, which for him is the only legitimate education, is to teach students to organize for revolution through an ongoing grooming process. Revolutionary grooming. Groomer schools. It is precisely this creation of a new reality prefigured in the revolutionary criticism of the old one that cannot exhaust the conscientization process, a process as permanent as any real revolution. So why are we having this revolution then? Why are you educating kids to be revolutionary change agents? To create a new reality. And if we understand our Marx, this must be understood quite literally. Marx said man's purpose is to humanize the world. Society has to be humanized. The world has to be humanized. Man himself has to be humanized. This is accomplished through work. Our right mock fry. Work makes free. Transforming reality through work that you envision in your own subjective mind 
bringing it to be in the objective world and seeing yourself in it. You've humanized the world by making a human product. You've humanized yourself by seeing that you're not an animal because you could make a human product. And you do this to other people and to yourself and thus awaken in them the same consciousness individuals made to live in societies. Wissenschaftlicher Socialismus, the scientific socialism. So this is accomplished by transforming reality according to the subjective vision of the socialist conscious subject. Anything that constrains the subjective range for Marx, including reality, the subjective range of your imagination, anything that constrains that for Marx, and constrains your ability to transform reality according to what you can imagine, toward the liberation and humanization of man, anything that limits your subjective range, your imagination in that regard, is a limitation upon man that apparently must arise from ideology and social relations, which are what condition man, and therefore must be abolished and transformed. So you have to make a new reality itself. And you think, well, this is just Freire. Well, Marx said it. Marcuse said it. Lukács says it. They all say it. Freire says, as transforming beings, people may stay glued to the new reality that comes about from their action, but they will be submerged in a new unclear vision. Conscientization, which occurs as a process at any given moment, should continue whenever and wherever the transformed reality assumes a new face. So this is what it's all about for Freire. This is why you have to die as a hopeless being and be reborn as a hopeful transforming being. This is why you have to have a perversion of the faith described in Hebrews 11.1. 1. This is why you have to have a perversion of the love of the people embodied not in Jesus Christ, but Che Guevara. Because this is Freire's religion, and this is what Freirean education is about, Marxist programming into Freire's religion. And your kids go to Paulo Freire's schools. I can't tell you this enough times. This is why our education system is the way that it is. This is why our education system is a disaster. This is why our kids are radicals who have behavior problems, who can't learn anything, who are destabilized, who are depressed and anxious, who are being put in a position to where they are then going to be socially transitioned and then physically transitioned by the schools if they can get away with it, separated from you first emotionally and socially and then later physically through child protective services if they can get them involved under the right circumstances, which they can groom your kids into, which they can groom your kids into learning how to do. This literally happens. You can look up the story of Yaley Galdamez if you want. That's one example I bring up a lot. It's a tragic story. Immigrant mother comes up from per, from Peru. Her daughter, Yaley, that's Y-A-E-L-I, if you want to look her up. Galdamez. Uh, it's Spanish, so it's spelled the way that it sounds. Ends in a Z. And so Yaley Galdamez is uh, groomed at school into believing that maybe she's a boy. She's socially transitioned at school. She's taught to understand that her parents won't give her affirming care, that she has to hide it from her parents, that they won't agree. And so child protective services are brought in by the social workers involved with the school and get Yaley taken out of her home so she can continue her transition because her parents won't do it. Literally taken out of the home, literally separated, and at 16 years old, immigrant in California. And at 19, Yaley walks in front of a train because it doesn't work. Because the transition process is bullshit. It doesn't work. This is all destruction posing as progress. It's all 
destruction posing as necessary progressivism. You can have a domesticated kid or you can have a liberated kid. You can have a trans kid or you can have a dead kid. That's the message. But what you end up with is a destabilized, ruined kid that's probably going to be a dead kid anyway. That's what this is all about. And it's literally, literally a matter of religion for Paulo Freire. It's literally something you have to die and be reborn into. And we're going to hear much more about that in the next chapter. That's what this is really about. The creation of a new reality prefigured in the revolutionary criticism of the old reality that cannot exhaust the conscientization process, which is a process as permanent, permanent as any real revolution. That's what's necessary. That's what's necessary. That's all these Marxists care about. That's all these Marxists do. It's all Freyrian education is equipped to accomplish. And your children are the fodder for their revolution. And it has to stop. Freyrian education has to be torn out, root and branch, out of the North American educational context. It has to be torn out all the way. That's culturally responsive teaching, culturally relevant teaching, social, emotional learning, trauma-informed, whatever. It's all got to go. It's all got to be pulled out. We've got to get back to basics, and we've got to start again. We have to do it now.